Good day. I am Joel McLeod. And I am Roland Tanner. And welcome to the 905er. Looking back over 2020, without a doubt, the majority of our attention has been focused on the pandemic. How COVID-19 has utterly reshaped our economy and lives, and it is understandably so. We are literally in the fight for our lives on this matter. However, while our attention is focused on the well-being of ourselves and our loved ones, our provincial government is focused on something else. Last month, the Ontario Progressive Conservative government tabled an omnibus bill, Bill 229, otherwise titled the Protect, Support, and Recover from COVID-19 Act, is supposed to do what it says, help Ontario businesses and citizens bear the weight of the pandemic and come out the other side together. However, buried in the omnibus legislation is Schedule 6, which seeks to curb the authority and powers of Ontario's 36 conservation authorities. These conservation authorities help Ontarians mitigate the rising costs of climate change. Through the preservation of our watersheds and helping to stem the risks of flooding in our communities, they are an integral component to ensuring we live in sustainable, and as you will soon hear, truly livable cities. We wanted to understand what the dangers and risks of this course of action by the Ontario government could be to the 905 region. Our guests today are Hassan Bassett, CEO and President of Conservation Halton. Hassan is an advocate for sustainable growth, healthy watersheds, and equitable access to green space. He's always interested in collaboration and open innovation to address environmental issues. As well, Janet Sumner joins us today. Janet has more than 25 years as an environmentalist. She has been the executive director of the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society Wildlands League since 2003. Janet has led the Wildlands League team in the achievement of substantial legislative reforms in Ontario and federally, notably for Ontario, a new Provincial Protected Areas and Conservation Preserves Act, the Mining Act of 2009, the Far North Act of 2010, and federally, Amendments to the Rouge National Urban Park Act of 2017. Both of them join Roland and I today to discuss the ramifications of this legislation. Welcome Hassan Bassett and Janet Sumner to uh, the podcast. Thanks so much for, for joining us today. And I thought we'd start off with you, Hassan, just in case there's anybody out there who's, who isn't entirely clear what, what it is that a conservation authority does, the broad function, maybe you could introduce us to that and then address what's actually been proposed by the provincial government under the changes they've announced during the budget process. Thanks, Roland. Um, I think there are certain aspects of what we do that more people will identify with. Um, you know, so to, to sort of take it from the top, there are 36 conservation authorities in the province that, that serve uh, the province of Ontario. There are a few regions where there aren't conservation authorities, but I think CAs, uh, you know, just to abbreviate that, serve most of the province. So well over 400 municipalities served by 36 CAs. Now, coming down to Conservation Halton, um, I think most people, most of your listeners will know us if I mention some of the parks that we operate, own and operate, such as Kelso, Glen Eden, Crawford Lake, Mountsburg, Hilton Falls, Rattlesnake Point, so on and so forth. And that's sort of, you know, a big part of our brand. Um, now, in addition to owning and operating and managing those vast conservation areas, which, which are becoming increasingly um, critical, I think, to our growing populations, we do a lot of other things. So we have the legislated authority from the province 
to ensure that all development occurs in a safe manner when it comes to natural flooding hazards. So to put it very simply, we review applications and we issue permissions and permits for all development that is occurring or adjacent to a floodplain. So wherever there is a risk of flooding next to a water body, the Conservation Authority reviews those and, and then issues appropriate permissions. And that's there for one reason only. It is there to protect life and property from flooding. The other thing that we do is we are also responsible for managing uh, all of the flood control structures. And so, so what does that mean? Dams and channels. We have four dams just in our watershed. Conservation authorities collectively across the province own and operate hundreds of dams. So that in itself is a key responsibility. We're responsible for looking at forecasts, for issuing flood warnings, uh, coordinating those with, with emergency services. So again, an immense responsibility for us. Outside of that, conservation authorities that have been around for 60, 70 years um, are also doing a lot of other things to manage the watershed uh, on a sort of a wholesome basis. So we monitor the environment. We, we look at water quality. We look at biodiversity. We're sort of the, the, the local body that keeps our finger on the pulse of what's going on with the environment. Out of that data, we do restoration programs, stewardship, forest, uh, you know, forestry operations. Again, to give you an example, Conservation Holton has planted well over 4 million trees just in our watershed. Um, and then we've evolved over the years to look at the assets that we have and see how we can serve our communities better in different ways. And that's where education comes in. You know, at CH, uh, we, had se we have 70,000 kids every year coming to our education programs. These are uh, field trips, if you will, you know, that, that come out. So, and, and stewardship, working with farmers, working with landowners to improve their properties. So there is a lot that goes into what a modern conservation authority does. But it does all of those things to still support our core mandate. It's just that we do it in a more fulsome way. Um, you know, there, there, it shouldn't just be one tool at our disposal to protect our communities from natural hazards, especially with climate change coming in. You have to have a smarter solution and you have to have to look at so many different things. Um, and, and that's in a nutshell what we do. We're also responsible for source water protection. Um, after the Walkerton tragedy, which I think most of your listeners will, will know of, and if they don't, I really encourage them to look into that because we often feel that, you know, those types of things don't occur in, in, in our country, but they do. They occur in our country, they've occurred in our province, and they've occurred recently. And so CAs were given the responsibility for, uh, for ensuring that we have good source water protection programs in place. So a lot of very, very key responsibilities on the shoulders of conservation authorities. Uh, and I should mention that CAs, the reason we have 36 CAs and 444 municipalities is that CAs were structured on watershed boundaries, which are natural boundaries, which makes a lot of sense. To put it quite simply, where a creek starts, our responsibility begins. Where that creek ends, our responsibility ends. And all of the area around that creek that drains into that creek is, is the watershed. So we have sort of these jagged boundaries that cross municipalities. Uh, and that's why 36 CAs can actually serve over 400 municipalities. So um, and we'll come on to the, the province's justifications for this in a bit. Uh, but but what is being proposed uh, by the provincial government uh, at the moment? Uh, and 
uh, how does that how would that change your work um, so Conservation authorities, uh, there is a Conservation Authorities Act, a provincial act, which sort of gives us our mandate. That act has been reviewed and and refreshed from time to time by various governments. Um, In my tenure alone at Conservation Halton, this would be my third Conservation Authority Act review. So to review an act is, is fairly normal. The government has the mandate to do that. Now, what the current government has done. They said they were going to review it. Fair enough. Um, they put out some objectives, which you know were the justification for the review. You have to have a need to review something, and their justification was that we'd like conservation authorities to focus more on their core mandate, which we agree with. We want them to be transparent, accountable, efficient, cost-effective, which we agree with. They then did some consultations last November across the province. They did open consultations. And, and then we heard nothing until a few weeks ago when, as part of uh, the government's budget bill uh, or budget, they um, attached or introduced Bill 229, which is essentially an omnibus bill. Within that bill is Schedule 6, which makes some very significant changes to the Conservation Authorities Act. So I think the first thing here is the vehicle that's being used to make these changes um, Again, the government is well within their right to do so. But what what it essentially means is because they've tied the changes to the CA Act to the budget, it allows them to not have any public input into the changes they're making. And it allows them, because they have a majority in parliament, to very, very quickly pass an omnibus bill um, tied to the budget. Now, the changes they've made to the CA Act, in fact, have nothing to do with the budget. And so because there are so many things in there that, are, that we feel have unintended consequences, the first thing we're asking the government to do is to withdraw Schedule 6 and to do proper consultation so you can actually understand whether the problems you stated you wanted to address are actually being addressed by these changes or whether you're making things worse. In, in our analysis, they are actually making things worse in many ways, and be happy to chat about that as we go along. Absolutely. Now, uh, Janet, bringing in you for a moment, what are your understanding of, of the impact of the proposed changes on on uh, the conservation authorities from from your perspective as as someone involved in trying to protect the environment first and foremost? Well, thanks, Roland. Um, well, as, as Hassan uh, very eloquently pointed out, what uh, conservation authorities do in a nutshell is really think at a watershed level. And when they think at a watershed level, it allows us to do all kinds of things that have foresight and take into account what future trends will look like, think about flooding and how it's changing under climate change. Just here in uh, the watershed where I live near the Rouge Valley, it's been flooded two out of the last four years. That's right next to Duffins Creek. And so we need to be thinking um, very much at a watershed scale. And in fact, in Canada, Southern Ontario is the flooding capital for Canada. So as we go into a climate-changed world and we need to be taking care of watersheds, we need to be doing more, not less, integrated watershed management and thinking. And what this particular bill does, 229, is it, essentially removes that. It says, 
don't do that. So, so it is completely the reverse of the direction that we should be going to. And I would underline that if this bill is meant to reduce red tape or to help with cost savings, those kinds of things, I don't think that when you have a Conservation Authority Act that is designed to protect people, places, and property, that removing the very things that it's supposed to be doing is actually going to, it's not about removing red tape. That's not red tape. <laughs> well, on that note, we were just talking a little bit offline here that here in Halton, uh, and specifically here in Burlington, we're f- quite familiar with the effects of flooding and with climate change. Uh, it was only uh, a few years ago that we had massive flooding here in Burlington that caused uh, significant damage to people's homes and, and property and to uh, municipal infrastructure. It was quite costly over the long run. And I remember there was a, a quite a worry of some people whether or not their insurance would be able to cover the, the damage to foundations and and property and, and whatnot. And, you know, the, that, that was one of the areas that, I mean, the Conservation Authority here in Halton, they, they kind of stepped off to say that this is this is an issue. This is what we do. And this isn't a, you can't just kind of fix this on the cheap. It's that you have to have a structural and long-term vision of how we're going to address this naturally. So I can see your point though, that the act, it can affect us a lot, lot more poignantly than people might think. Yeah, I think it's, I think the result of these changes will be more flooding, more property damage, higher insurance costs, and less green space. And let's face it, we're all living with a pandemic climate change, and biodiversity loss. And the number one thing we need is more nature, not less. And this bill is taking us in exactly that opposite direction. I, I want to uh, just ask a quick question uh, to you, Hassan, because some of our listeners might be thinking of you as a barrier to development, and that's always a, a question on people's minds here. And you know, since you're here, what do you, what do you have to say to that? How do, you, how do you view your organization's role in the development of the communities here in Halton and, and large? Um, that's an excellent question, Joel. And and it certainly is um, part of the, I'll call it the false narrative that developers are pushing out there to somehow say that we have um, a shortage of developable land, that that's driving up house prices and that's somehow impacting affordability. And that the reason for all of that is that we have too many environmental regulations and that the Conservation Authority are sort of prime suspects in having those regulations. So so let's talk about that. First of all, it's nonsense. Um, Our job is not to protect the environment from the people. We're not an environmental agency. We're a Conservation Authority. Our job is to protect the environment for the people, which means every single day when we come to work, our job is to enable development, economic growth, prosperity, but also livability and sustainability for the community. We are in it for the long run. So we are enablers of development. We just don't want people to build their homes or their businesses where they're going to lose their life or their property. We are protecting what I call the bare minimum red line around the environment. We're not even talking here about looking at species at risk or biodiversity or habitat. We're simply saying, if you build in this area, you will get flooded based on the risk that, that, that you know, the, the threshold that we've established, the standard within the province. So we're actually enablers of good, responsible development, and we're looking out for the interests uh, of both the developers, the people who are going to be living in those spaces, but also of the community long-term. You, you referenced the, the 2014 floods in Burlington. 
The economic cost of that is one thing. The emotional cost of that is another thing. And the multi-generational cost to the city of trying to fix things, of spending money on infrastructure, is, a, is something that's long-term that CAs would like to prevent. Let's not get ourselves in trouble today so future generations have to, A, either bail us out, or B, not have the same right to prosper on this land that we do today. So, you know, it's, there, there are no metrics, there is no statistic that backs up the contention that we have too many environmental regulations. Well, I, I just want to touch on that one point that you just said there about how you don't want to pass on the burden to future generations, which is kind of a conservative talking point of, you know, ma- managing the tax, the, sorry, the, the tax debt so future generations aren't paying it off. And you're kind of looking at it as a, um, you know, the, the environmental debt, which, uh, you know, as we're, as we're seeing due to climate change could be a lot more costly, uh, both in terms of lives and economics. Um, so I just I just want to add that point in there. Yeah, it's reducing liabilities and risks, right? That's the other thing, and those are those are financial consequences. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean the, the economic impact of the flood in Burlington, which is probably the best example that all uh, four of us are probably very familiar with, was huge. And for the people who were affected and whose houses were flooded because uh, of that those were really life-changing events for them and that was just one flood in one city and we're seeing similar things happen in toronto as well i'll give an example just because i'm somewhat familiar with 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 some of the things sort of things that the conservation hall will do when developments are being proposed in a city like burlington or anywhere in the 905 region so the one i'm very familiar with is 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 the stable top of bank criteria uh, what that means in Burlington specifically is that you can't build a tall building too close to the lake because the land that the building is on has to be stable and you have to be sure that it's not going to crumble away or erode uh, and end up with a tall building sitting in the lake rather than near the lake. So th- these are really pretty fundamental things. And, uh, and I know that some of the regulations which are in place today, if they had been in place 20 years ago, would have had an effect on how the waterfront in Burlington uh, actually looks. And uh, in fact, one building that's still under development would not have been built. So what's being proposed now is that these some of these powers be weakened or taken away completely from the conservation authorities. Can you clarify that point, Hassan? I can, and I think it's important for me to point out ex- exactly what our concern is, because otherwise... We'll just keep talking in sound bites back and forth where we'll say, you're messing things up, and the province will say, no, we're not. So let me explain how we, we think. The integrity, and it, it is about the integrity of the permitting and planning process, is going to be uh, essentially weakened. And so the specific thing is there's a clause um, within the amendments that says that the minister can step in once an application has been submitted to the Conservation Authority and make his or her own decision. So that is a huge concern. Now, the, 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 the minister has said that, you know, province should have that right. They're not going to use it quite often uh, to look out for uh, projects that are of provincial interest. Um, and, and again, I respect the government's mandate to make certain changes. We're, we're simply highlighting that these changes are going too far and they're not actually solving the problem. Look at what a conservation authority does 
in making a determination as to whether or not to issue permission. And you pointed out table, uh, stable topic bank. All of that is done based on science and numbers and engineering. Uh, there is no subjectivity that goes into that. How then can a conservation authority that is staffed with engineers and planners and ecologists and uh, you know and hydrologists look at the data, make a, a, a determination, and how can a minister or a ministry that has even fewer skills in this area look at the same data and arrive at a different conclusion? You simply cannot do it. Uh, and so you're opening up uh, potentially a back door that puts the lives and properties of Ontarians at risk. This is very much about increasing risk, increasing liability, and slowly taking away the integrity of the permitting process. Uh, and you know whether this was intended or unintended, um, I'm going to hope that it was an unintended consequence. It really does underscore all we're asking the province to do, which is hold on for a second, remove this schedule from the bill, do proper consultations, so that your stated intent of having transparency and focus and efficiency can actually be addressed. Now, Janet, uh, just to bring you in, what do you think the backstory is to this? Why do you think the province... I mean, because this fits into something of a wider picture of, of what this provincial government has been doing since 2018. And the, the accusation certainly is that this is about making life easier for developers. Do you think that's a, a, an accurate portrayal of the real motivation going on here? Well, I, I do think it does. It, it calls that into question. And it speaks to a, um, a sort of a broader playbook, if you will. And uh, one of the other schedules in 229 is uh, Schedule 8, which uh, has an exemption for forestry across the province to be exempt from the Endangered Species Act. Um, forestry covers half of the province of Ontario. So all of the species, the turtles, the migratory birds, the caribou that exist or try to coexist with forestry are going to now not have the provisions of the Provincial Endangered Species Act protecting them. That's a massive change to make in an omnibus budget bill. It clears the way for a doubling of logging in the province. Uh, we see a pattern here. We also have the overuse of MZOs, which are municipal zoning orders, or as I like to call them, municipal override orders. Um, and uh, they've used, I think, over 33. And you're seeing one with Duffins Creek. And when you combine that with the, the permission in this particular Schedule 6 to, for the minister to issue a permit, that looks like a fast track for development. And it's not even um, dependent on government strike. When you go back and you look at Mike Harris's record, he, he actually created 2.4 million hectares of new protections. So uh, is it this particular government and how they're approaching it and what they're doing? But it starts to tell a story in and of itself. You look at um, the Jason Kenney playbook out of Alberta, where he's rolling back, deregulating provincial parks and fighting climate change. We've got a provincial government here who's stuck at protecting 10% of the province, hasn't moved forward on any notion of protecting 30%, which is what the, the worldwide scientists are calling for, and making it easier for de developers to move forward between the MZO and the Schedule 229. Um, that doesn't start to tell a very pretty picture. And uh, we actually need, as I suggested, more nature to address issues like 
climate change and biodiversity loss and, and flooding, certainly. And the role of conservation authorities is going to be crucial as we move forward. And, and nobody, we, we will just be in a position where we're having to uh, address another flood and another flood and another flood if this goes forward. And as Hassan said, the work that conservation authorities do is non-partisan. I mean, it's dealing with facts, not opinions. Um, exactly. That if something isn't safe, it isn't safe. There's nothing that a minister, with all the political pressures, um, partisan pressures that a minister of any party might be under, can bring to that, because he or she is is obviously going to have less knowledge <laughs> than, than the experts. But I guess that also somewhat uh, feeds into... Um, a narrative that we're kind of familiar with this year, uh, or some of us might say. I guess if I, I would, I would say it's it, at the very least, it's a deregulation agenda. I mean, you can ascribe any other motivations to it you wish, but at the very least, it's a deregulation agenda. Right. I know some of our listeners, um, when they're, they're going to be listening to this episode, they're going to be thinking of obviously the green belt. We've had a number of uh, listeners email us saying we should do a story on the green belt. And this doesn't necessarily directly tie into it, but clearly we know that the, the government doesn't have an, an official agenda to, to go into the green belt, to start developing in the green belt. However, the concern would be legislation such as this could start tiptoeing down the road and start maybe just through incrementalism, opening the doors into um, long, long-term long development of the green belt and maybe just dismantling part of that. Um, is that a concern that you might have down the road of what this might lead to down the road, just an, an erosion of, of the Conservation Authority's powers and, and abilities to conserve our environment? Uh, Asana, I'll start with you if, if you want to weigh in. Um, well, Joel, I think, you know, I can't speak to the intent of the government and what they, mm-hmm. what, you know, if there's an agenda or there isn't. What I can say is this. Um, we, we just talked about one, one clause in, this, in these amendments, right, in a very direct way. There are others as well um, that, that weaken the conservation authority model. Things like saying that, you know, we have a board of directors. Members to that board are appointed by municipalities. Um, so there's complete accountability from the conservation authority to its member municipalities. They get to appoint X number of people on every board. Depends on how much of a municipality is within the watershed. Some councils, uh, for instance, Burlington, chooses to send two councillors and two citizen reps, right? Because they feel they want uh, certain skills that the community can represent to be on there. They may choose to send four councillors one of the years. It is entirely up to them. When you sit on the board of a corporate body, you have to act in the interests of that corporate body. That's fiduciary responsibility. The change that the minister has made here or the government has made to the CA Act says once municipalities appoint councillors to the board of a conservation authority, and by the way, they're saying you can only appoint councillors, which fine, doesn't matter to us. They are to act in the interest of their municipality. We think that there is no precedent for this form of governance within the organization, within Canada, I'm sorry. So when you start to look at some of those things, you start to say, okay, they may be making changes in a few areas that, that you know, are impacting our core. And they're saying, oh, you can still, you know, have conservation areas and protect nature and protect green space. But then you're kind of messing around with governance in a way that's unprecedented. You know, so, so those weaknesses are gradually going to get introduced into the system. 
and we may end up with a patchwork of environmental agencies, none of them on their own able to present a cohesive picture of whether we're improving or not improving on a province-wide scale. And, and that's sort of the concern I have. I mean, it seems to me, from the albeit limited experience I have, that the conservation authority model is one that just seems to work pretty well to me. I mean, I, I haven't been aware of any public pressure to, to make a change. The province itself has come out with this statement that, well, the there's kind of been mission creep, if you like, amongst conservation authorities. They're doing too much. But I haven't seen that coming from the public, really. I mean, is that a fair criticism? Or do you think, I mean, is there a need to refocus the attention of conservation authorities? So I think that there are elements of that that are entirely fair. And I think that that's the case in, in a lot of uh, services, right, where over time there can be mission creep. What is driving that mission creep? It is not to accumulate some sort of green power within conservation authorities. It is to respond to evolving climate change pressures, to the lack of updated guidelines from the province. It is looking at the needs of the community to say, we were doing X, but now that it's 2020 and there is more science and more awareness and more people and more risk and more hazard, we've actually realized that X plus one is the best solution to implement. So yes, there's been some scope creep, but it's been driven by the intent to straight stay true to our core. Now I'm with the province on that. Let's come in, let's take a look, and let's say, you know what, you're doing these three or four things that are actually adding to delays, that are maybe uh, duplication of effort. And if there is, if we're saying something and another regulator, let's say the municipality is also giving an opinion on that and the province is giving an opinion on it, then I think that's unfair to developers. It's unfair to the public. And we need to eliminate those duplications. We need to eliminate that red tape. We're all for it, Roland. What the province is introducing is doing the opposite of that. It is taking away our ability to appeal as a landowner um, or as an agency at the local planning appeals tribunal. It is instead giving applicants the ability to appeal our decisions to the minister, to appeal our decisions to the local planning and appeals tribunal. And again, we're all for an appeals mechanism. We feel there needs to be one in case a mistake has been made. But there already is an appeals mechanism. If you come into a conservation authority, we render a decision. And by the way, just so everybody knows, we rarely deny a permit. Interesting. Why? We actually work with you. You know, and sometimes people say, well, it takes so long to get permission from a conservation authority. So first of all, it doesn't. We publish our metrics. We're nailing it on all fronts. 99% of our permits are going out within the prescribed you know, 30 days or 90 days, depending on whether it's a major or a minor permit. Provincial target was trying to get to 80%. So first of all, there's no problem there. Secondly, if it takes sometimes time, it's because we're a solution-oriented agency. If you come to us and say, I want to build this, and we say, sorry, but you're encroaching in an area where you can't go away, the answer is no. You know, we could turn around that service in a matter of days. Instead, we say, hey, Joel, uh, we want to sit down with you, okay? You, you want a parking lot with eight cars? It's not going to go here. Let's bring our engineers to the table. You bring yours to the table, and let's try and design this thing so we can get you to yes. You know, that solution finding is missing, I think, 
in name another government department that's willing to work with you that way. So we do do that. So I think you have to kind of take the good with the bad sometimes, but we rarely deny a permit. I think one or two in my lifetime with the Conservation Authority, and I've been here for 17 years. So again, that false narrative of we're an impediment to growth simply is not backed up by any data or statistics. Just mentioned that uh, most cities in uh, most municipalities in Ontario would, would love to have uh, meet as many deadlines if, as you've just said you do, <laughs> because they miss them all the time. <laughs> now, uh, Janet, you mentioned already the ministerial zoning orders, and there's one particular story developing at the moment within, uh, I believe, Pickering, the Pickering wetlands. Yeah, Daphne's Creek. Yeah, so can you just for our listeners explain uh, what's going on there and again re-explain if you like what what an MZO actually is. Yeah, so it's a it's an ability for uh, the minister to issue a ministerial zoning order that overrides the the municipal uh, planning. And in this case they've done it uh, with a warehouse that wants to be put onto a wetland. Um, Joel asked a question about uh, the Greenbelt, and this is not far from the Greenbelt. It's right next to Rouge National Urban Park. And anything that's happening just adjacent to the Greenbelt or to the, the other areas of protection, if you start to issue development that is deliberately right on a wetland, it, it's going to diminish the, the ecological value of the area that you've actually set aside. And so that's already starting to occur. And then you combine that with this permission under 229 for the minister to come in and basically um, push forward the the fact that you can advance an, an MZO to destroy um, a provincially significant wetland is uh, is a problem. And so uh, I think that that's that the two things combined uh, create a problem. And so that's a, uh, that's that's what we have concerns about, and uh, just just thinking this through doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. That if you've got like like Hazanas keeps saying is if you're trying to actually get if you're trying to get to the solution, which is I want to do a building, I want to create something that actually has longevity, has uh, good control over flood water management, actually um, is not going to <laughs> create an insurance risk for me, is all those things. You'd actually think you want to get ahead of that and actually sit down and do the, the proper planning instead of using an MZO in combination with 229 and then to basically just override it. And I feel sometimes that this... You know, and this is me editorializing, and so I apologize. But I sometimes feel that the provincial government simply doesn't see the va- if it doesn't see the value in something, it doesn't want to protect it. Well, and just to, to also discuss how how perverse it is, you've got a program in Rouge National Urban Park that is doing a massive reintroduction of Blanding's turtles. They're working with the University of Toronto Scarborough campus. They're working with the Toronto Zoo, the park. They've all been running this program. And it is, it's intended to reintroduce an endangered species, the Blanding's turtle. And adjacent to that, there is this suggestion in Duffins Creek that they're going to build on a wetland that contains Blanding's turtles. Um, the, the, new legis- the new changes to the Endangered Species Act are what some environmentalists call a pay to slay. So in other words, if you're going to build on endangered species habitat, you have to pay a certain amount of money and you get to destroy the habitat and that but to me that those things are all starting to work into concert and you can kind of see 
oh, the narrative is starting to build and it doesn't take, you don't have to put too many puzzle pieces together to actually grasp what's going on. And I think that's what uh, we're seeing. What is your opinions of, because of hearing from uh, you, Hassan, that the Conservation Authority really does want to help develop our communities to be more ecologically, environmentally, and economically sustainable. Why is it that you're not welcome at the table that often? Like, why wouldn't you be the first person or first organization a developer would go to to say, hey, I've got this idea for a new subdivision, or I've got, you know, we want to develop a new business park or whatever the project might be. I don't understand why the reluctance to talk with you. Is it just because they don't want to go through another government bureaucracy and they just want to bulldoze and build? Or where do you think that reluctance comes from? Yeah, so, you know, the way, and again, you know, the province is diverse, and the developers who build in different parts of the province are equally diverse. So when when we look at Halton, for instance, um, you know, and for your listeners, you know, lots of people don't know Halton. But, you know, they'll know Oakville and Burlington and Milton and Georgetown and Acton. That's Halton. Um, Milton, up until a few years ago, had the, the fastest growing in the community in the country uh, tag, right? Uh, North Oakville is developing. Burlington is redeveloping. Not a lot of greenfield, but a lot of redevelopment. So the growth is occurring. And those developers are coming to the Conservation Authority primarily because they need to. Uh, as part of the process. And they do exactly what you said. They come to us at a very very early stage to say, we're contemplating this. We get involved at sub-watershed level. And, and, you know, those are the areas where we need to work out how can we do things quicker? How can we have the rules more clear? But also for the developers, you, you also have to understand that the two of us, you know, the agencies that regulate and the, the for-profit companies that want to build we respect each other's perspective, and we, we need to acknowledge that they're coming from opposite ends. Our job is public safety, public good, uh, sustainability of the community. Their job is, while they probably don't disagree with those, their primary concern is maximizing profitability. Right. So right away, we kind of start off with they're proposing X, and we're saying it's going to look more like Y, you know, or Z, and it takes a while to get there. Now, I'm not saying all developers are behind this, but I'm certainly not hearing any dissenting voices. Um, so that's a concern, right? Uh, where are the good ones? Where are the ones who've actually worked with the Conservation Authority here and across the province, have received good service, have built thousands and thousands of homes, have sold them, and, and their communities will be safe and livable and out of the hazard? They need to stand up and say, we actually don't have a problem with this. We do have a problem with a few other areas, and we'd like that to be ironed out. Instead, what's happening is, is there a way to completely get the conservation authority into the smallest possible box so we don't have to even go to them? You know, and, and what they consider the path of least resistance to getting approvals in the long run is, is the path of path the greatest resistance to getting a livable, viable uh, community in in this part of the province, and you know, here's what's frustrating. We, we, there's a lot going on, obviously, with climate change. Certainly, I think most people's perceptions, quite rightfully so, are that you know, if I can say this, is that 
we're primarily screwed. You know, we've messed things up and we've got to dig ourselves out of a big hole to even try and, and, and manage this thing. Let me counter that narrative a little bit. In Ontario, it was two conservative premiers, actually, that, that formed the Conservation Authority and then strengthened it, right? And they did it after World War II because they looked at what was going on in the province and they, they knew that we needed not just a strong economic response, but a strong emotional response to our future communities as well. And so they formed the Conservation Authority model. That model, Roland, as you said, has worked really well. Ontario does not have, floods will always be there, and they're going to get more and more damaging. But we do not have the chronic flooding problem that every other province in this country has. I'm not even comparing us to other parts of the world. I'm comparing us to our neighbors in Quebec. I'm com comparing us to Alberta, to uh, across the border in New York. You know, we're actually in a position of strength. We have built, since we've had these, these, this approach, very responsible communities. It's not enough, but it's not as bad as other places. So to squander away that competitive and, and sustainability advantage right now is what is more infuriating. The entire world is going to struggle a lot more than we are to manage our communities. Let's not throw that advantage out the window. I think that's might be where we where we might have to wrap it up because uh, we're, we're getting on on with time. But I think that's a great note to uh, to end the episode on Hassan. And uh, I'd like to thank both you and uh, Janet for coming on uh, this week's episode. And I, I think this will be a topic that we'll be uh, coming back to in in future episodes for certain. Great, thanks a lot. Nice meeting you, Janet. Joel. Nice to meet you. Thanks very much. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster. And not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. 
Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. <laughs>